Welcome to today's special event here at the Apple Store Sydney. Would you please join me in welcoming our guest, Kim Farrant? And today's events will be moderated by Gary Maddox from the Sydney Morning Herald. Thanks very much and uh, welcome everyone. How do you go from a successful maker of shorts and documentaries to your first feature? How do you attract a blue chip cast that includes Nicole Kidman, Joseph Fiennes, Hugo Weaving, and a really strong supporting cast. And what's it like working with them on an ambitious first film, a, a mystery drama that's in the festival's competition for courageous, audacious, and cutting-edge cinema? We're about to find out when we talk to Kim Farrant, a uh, former actor, uh, talented director, whose film had its world premiere at Sundance and has now emerged at Sydney Film Festival. So welcome, Kim. Thank you. Can everyone hear us? Okay, it's very loud in here, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, thanks for coming to the Apple Store. And uh, for those of you who've seen Strangerland, I hope you got something from it. Um, so do you want me to go to that first question? Well, maybe I'll start by asking the obvious question about the idea. It all starts with the idea, and this was a lot of years ago for you, wasn't it? What was the idea that, that kind of formed in your mind and said, this is, this is going to be my first film? So, uh, films come from different places for me, and this one came from a, a fascination with theme. So, I was interested in the theme of um, how, we, how we deal with life when crisis hits us. So, how we kind of act out or behave or, you know, wh what we grasp for. And um, I'd had an experience when I was... 22 of my father dying and it was a kind of very awful tragic death and um, I was living in New York and I was by myself and very vulnerable and grief stricken and I found myself <clears throat> wanting to connect, uh, wanting touch, wanting to be held and then it kind of manifested into wanting to have sex and it was like why am I wanting to do this in a time where I actually feel so fragile? Probably what I really just need is a hug and not to put myself, you know, in, in the line of view of like a total stranger who doesn't really care about me. So I acted out with a couple of people. It was only a couple of people, but it really disturbed me about myself that I'd done that. And then I, I realised that there was this kind of connection between loss and uncertainty and feeling incredibly powerless in the face of loss that I was kind of clasping for something that I could feel like I could hold on to. And momentarily I think, you know, sex can make you feel like you're in control. But pretty soon that grief just assailed me again and I was no longer in control. So I was fascinated by how... You know, we all act out in different ways, and for some of us it might be alcohol or drugs or work or blaming others, violence, things like that. And for some of us it might be uh, sex. So I wanted to, to shine a light on this because my experience of that was that I felt incredibly shameful about that. And I thought, well, do other people feel like this? Am I the only one? Am I the only person who's acted out sexually? 
And then I thought, well, probably not. But because it happens behind closed doors, it's not something that really people talk about. So that was like a kind of theme that lingered with me. And then I was always interested, in my, a lot of my films are around exposing the truth and getting to the core of things, and I'm interested in family. And so I was like, found this amazing writer, Fiona Series, um, who's the original writer, and and kind of talked to her about like what would what would happen if we explored like this murky territory of how we act out in crisis and couple that with you know a family who who moved to a remote place and uh, one of their kids goes missing, which is like you know every parent's worst nightmare. Your kids are missing. So that's kind of how it came about. Then we, we wrote an outline together and then she wrote the script. And then years later, we also brought on another writer as well, Michael Canirans. That's a fascinating concept. So there's a link in your case between grief and sex. In this film, it's not so much grief for Nicole Kidman, she, or her character. It's about stress, distress, trauma. Tell us about that kind of link and how you thought about that character. Well. I actually disagree with you. I think there is grief going on because it's the grief of uh, not knowing and the potential loss, so fear that then kind of manifests into grief, but also grief at decisions that she made along the way as a parent, you know, which has impacted her children and what's going on in that household. So um, I, for me, there, it was definitely a link. And, I mean, you know, sex is a very primal act and in the face of potential loss when you feel like dying or death around you or potential you know the fear of death and not knowing and I think as a parent if your kids go missing if any of you have ever had that experience or even lost them for 10 minutes in the supermarket first thing you might go to is death you know someone's taken my children or they've been hit by a car or you know and then within that like it, it, for me my experience of losing someone that I loved was that I wanted to die you know, because I felt like a part of me had died. And when you make love or you have sex, you feel very alive. So it's like this polarity that allows you to, to grasp at life again when you feel like everything's been taken away. There's a fascinating generational thing in talking about sex in there because we have Nicole Kidman who is not happy in her marriage. I guess you would say sexual life is, is absent with her current, with her husband. But we have a daughter who is acting out sexually as well. So how did you see the, the kind of connection between those two? So um, we... Oh, it's so juicy talking about sex. We haven't wasted Love any it. time getting to the heart of the matter Love here. It. We didn't waste a moment. Oh, my God. Um, can, we so, keep, can we keep talking about sex for an hour, do you think? Yeah, or? I'm sure I could. Uh, so... Um, oh, my God, now I've lost the question. Oh, no, I know. So... Um, yeah, my, my uh, part of our research was around um, <clears throat> this kind of notion of uh, triangulation and how it's a psychologist, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the word, it's a, it's a word that psychologists use to describe the kind of um, dynamics of, you know, if you have a couple and you have something that's not being expressed, it'll often get expressed through a third party. So that which is repressed between the parents, which is their sexual dynamic, is being expressed by the daughter. So it's kind of like that sexual energy 
it has to go somewhere. It's, it, they're in a house, like they're in this kind of vault, and that energy is being pushed down, and that, so it's going to come up somewhere, and it comes up, it valves via the daughter, and in a way she's kind of reflecting back to them that, to, that which they are denying and repressing, which of course makes that even more confronting for them. It's, it's clearly distressing for her father, but a mother reacts in an interesting way. At one point we see her put on the girl's T-shirt and attempt to become sexual with one of her partners. What's what you're thinking there? So, um, as a woman in my 40s, uh, I didn't, we didn't start this when I was in my 40s, but Fiona was a little bit older than me. And we talked about this thing of how as a woman, as you get older, you can become less visible to, you know, men and people around you. And how uh, then Fiona had children and then it's like you're, you know, you've got like a teenage daughter and she's gorgeous and she's like a mirror image of you. And so the mother, as her beauty's starting to fade and she's starting to get older and she can't necessarily trade on her, you know, sexual currency anymore, then uh, she starts seeing it reflected in her daughter and because she's been shutting it down within herself, Seeing it in her daughter brings up her own longing, like why have I let that happen? Why have I shut down my sexuality? Um, but also a love and also a protection of her daughter, like an, a need to kind of, uh, I want to stop you from being, you know, Lily's like a child woman. She's at that perfect age where she's, you know, in one moment you just want to cuddle her and protect her and in the other moment she's like, you know, got all this oozing sexuality. So it's like this very appealing age for other people to look at um, and I think the mother or I think mothers are often aware of that or they sense that in their children and it can be beautiful on one hand as you watch them grow and on the other hand terrifying is something bad going to happen to them. So but Catherine because she's shut it down when when her daughter goes missing it's like all the things that haven't been dealt with the children have been like the glue keeping the family together the parents relationship together and when the kids go missing it's like all the things that have been swept under the carpet start surfacing including her sexuality and also it's a way to try and connect with her daughter don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the mother finds something that belongs to the daughter and she's looking at it and she's getting this insight into her daughter. And through that, it's like, if I can be like you, if I can relive that sexuality, then maybe I can bring you back. Maybe I can feel you again, you know, which is a way of being close to her. Given what you've said about the relationship between mother and daughter, why have a second child missing? Why have Tommy as well as Lily? Well... Okay, again, trying not to spoil it for those who haven't seen it, but uh, Tom, Tom's the wanderer. Tom's the one whose um, his way of dealing with the tension in the household is to go and walk at night. And so, you know, he's in our story, in our plot, he's the one that goes off walking. And Lily's up for any adventure, you know, so she actually goes after him. So it, that, that for us was like also the... Um, Sophie's Choice kind of thing of like, okay, both your kids are missing. One comes back. Which one will it be? <laughs> and how's that going to leave you? And how are you going to react to the one who comes back? And it, with some of the research that we did with, with parents who'd lost their children, 
Then we also spoke to some siblings, and that was like, whoa, you're the invisible one. You know, like all the focus is on the child that's gone missing and the child that's in trouble, and then the one that remains becomes a reminder of that missing child. They also come become like, well, why wasn't it you, you know, if, if that other child was a more favoured child? So it was, it was interesting to have a dynamic where we had the opportunity for the mother or the father to blame the other sibling, you know. And, and the father says something early on to the kid, uh, to Tom, about, you know, don't let her out of your sight. And it's like, he's younger than his sister, yet because she's so kind of sexually provocative and crazy and out there, that he's, as, he, in a way, he, he's made responsible to look after her. So we were, we were kind of looking at the apportion of blame as well throughout the story on different levels. Okay. Can you tell us, Kim, about the films you made leading up to Strangerland and the territory they covered that might have fed into this, into this theme? Yes. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking of my first film I ever made, which was a drama with Zoe Caridis and John Paulson. Sex scene. Uh, anyway, um, so, yeah, as I said before, I'm interested and always have been interested in kind of unveiling truths in people and in looking at um, areas which are more uncomfortable, like sexuality and how that's perceived. I made a feature documentary called Naked on the Inside, which screened at the festival a few years ago, which was all about looking at six people from around the world with extraordinary body issues, and, and it was kind of who we are beyond our clothes and skin. They all did a series of clothed and naked portraits, looking at, you know, if clothes are like status, occupation, religion, then without clothes, who are you? You know, without that kind of veil, then who are you? And also, when we're naked, often something else is revealed about us and that kind of it's harder to hide our vulnerabilities or our frailties or our, you know, might be in some cases our rage. So I w I've kind of always had this fascination with the body as well as how that links into how we are in the world and whether we lead from our body or how we kind of greet the world. And... Catherine was a character who greeted the world through her body. You know, that was her way of relating through touch. Um, so I suppose it's kind of continued in that way for me for a long time. And right before I made, uh, well, we made Strangerland, I made a half-hour drama uh, called Between Me, which was about um, people dealing with early kind of situations of their sexuality and from childhood and how that affected them in their adult lives. So it's definitely a theme that permeates through all of my work and probably will do for a long time because I'm fascinated by it. Okay. Especially yeah. also, sorry, just to say, you know, uh, how f feminine sexuality is represented, you know, and I think that's often um, can be judged, the power of female sexuality, the, you know... I, and I can't obviously speak for the men in the room, but for some of the men that I've experienced in my life being with, where their way of feeling their emotions is through their connection with a woman and through their sexuality, where that kind of opens them up and disarms them, and then they can express their feelings, and often a lot of their love and energy and also any other repressed emotions, rage or whatever, can come out through that connection through sex and so to kind of 
that can create a lot of desire and longing, but also feelings of like overwhelm, of like of, I can lose myself in you. Like if I love you this much because I get to feel my heart, which normally I'm walking around with my mask and trying to keep everything in control and keep my shit together and look presentable for the world. And But then in this surrender of making love, which often can open up your heart as well, then it's like big exposure. So then that can leave someone feeling very vulnerable to that other person. So at one hand, it's like very appealing. And on the other hand, it's like, don't come too close. This is too intimate. I don't want you to see this. And that kind of tied into Matthew and how he'd shut down, unable to cope with his children, what happened in the last town with Lily. He's kind of shut down his sexuality because if he feels that and if he expresses himself intimately with his wife, all those feelings are going to come up, all the stuff he couldn't deal with about being a father and protecting his daughter. And so I think they're very li linked. Can you tell us, Kim, about the different stages of developing the film? Uh, I gather it took more than a decade to get off the ground. How did it evolve and how much did it change from the original idea? Uh, so, yeah, the film took a long time to make uh, from inception to Sundance which was six months, five months ago was 13 years so a long time, a lot of patience, resilience um, you know, amazing producer Naomi Wank over there, her incredible support and determination So, as well as my determination um, and so what was the question? What stages did it go through? How did it oh, evolve? What stages did it go through? So uh, we were very lucky. We had some development finance through the AFC. You know, we had script advisors. We had hours and hours and hours of, you know, notes over drafts. And um, I think one thing that I would do differently next time, well, I know I would definitely do, is to just bring in the, the, the cone of silence a bit more around who reads the script. I feel like we had so many advisors along the way that it was very hard to keep coming back to the truth of what we wanted to say, you know? And we managed to do it, but, but I think sometimes there can be, in the filmmaking process, especially when you're dealing with lots of different parties, lots of different voices, you know? And you have to keep coming back to, what's the truth of the story that, that is, is actually bigger than me, bigger than the writer, bigger than the producers, bigger than, you know, all the people making it, but the story that needs to be told and being true to that and kind of putting that before anyone, before anyone's needs or likes. Um, so we, you know, we had various rounds of development funding. We had, you know, trips out into the desert <laughs> uh, looking for locations. We had trips around the world trying to get money up, pitching at markets, um, you know, lots of different stages. And, and part of me making that half-hour drama before making Strangerland was I'd made different short films and I'd made half-hour docs and feature docs and TV. But then when it came to actually going for funding, it was like my last short had been like three years earlier. So I had to make another short, which I did through Possible, which was amazing, uh, crowdfunding. Made another short to say, well, here's my work now. You know, like, so this is what I'm doing now. And so, you know, you have to do a lot of proving yourself. And But the great thing is that you learn and grow and evolve as a filmmaker. And I did certainly as a woman as well. So that by the time we were, we got funding, you know, Naomi and I were talking about this the other day, like we felt ready. It was like we'd done so much work, we'd jumped through so many hoops, we'd developed the script and it was so like ready to go. And I was like, yeah, let's just do it now. 
There must have been a thousand moments of doubt, uh, fear that this thing might never get made, that you might never be able to get the finance together. How did you keep going forward? Yes, lots of fears and doubts. Uh, you know, obviously I had a strong network of friends and people around me and strong producers and and just the, the idea and the themes behind the story were actually what kept me going. I still found myself lying awake in the middle of the night thinking about why that character's doing this and what are we saying through that. And so that that need to, I have to tell this, like we have to tell this, kind of drove me beyond any time we'd get a no. And there was plenty of setbacks. There was plenty of no's along the way. No, go and develop this more. No, and rewrite that bit more. And no, and go and get more money. Or no, you know, <laughs> go get someone else. Um, so, but it kind of galvanised in me, like, you know, I, I know this needs to be expressed. And part of why it took so long is it was a challenging film in terms of the content. It's not like you leave my film or our film and go, hey, I feel great. I just want to go and party. It's not that kind of film. It doesn't leave you feeling high. So it kind of leaves you questioning and uncomfortable. And that's what we wanted to do, to make you think and to make you question yourself and how you act out in times of crisis and how you judge others and how you judge yourself so that hopefully you'd have more compassion and forgiveness for yourself or that we would as well. So um, within that, it was difficult because it didn't give you the, here is all neatly tied up in a bow and now you can feel great. It was like, let's look at the darker sides of our psyche and of our, how we, our tragic flaws and those parts of ourselves that go, oh my God, this is so unlovable. If you saw this in me, you would leave me or you would reject me or you would hit me or whatever. And actually to show that to people, to shine a light on that, part of that purpose was that maybe we could realise that we all have those parts. That's what we fall in love with about each other, is those vulnerable moments, those very human moments. So that's what we wanted to expose. Nicole Kibben puts in such a terrific, raw, kind of open-hearted performance. Very unusual for her to do a first film. How did you get her on board and at what stage did she come on? So, yes, Nicole, I think, is, uh, does put in an incredible performance in the film and uh, she's an amazingly brave actress, um, not just for working with first-timer like me, but for being someone who chooses interesting roles like um, the one... What's the one she did? Rabbit Hole, and then the one before that was set in the swamp. Anyone? Paperboy, uh, you know, gutsy, gutsy roles. So um, she's a brave actress, so that helped. Uh, Hugo Weaving, amazing, came on board after a first draft. I'd, he was in my second short film and we came back to him and he loved the script. The script was, you know, it was so beautiful and sparsely written and so it attracted a lot of interest. Hugo read it, he signed on. And then years later, after many, you know, rewrites and growing and life happening and setbacks and whatever, uh, we did another draft and then he's, his American agent read it and Nicole is also represented by that agent. So the agent read it and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So he really liked it and gave it to Nicole. She read it, she loved it, she wanted to do it. You know, I got a call saying from Naomi saying, hey, Nicole wants to do the movie. And I was like, oh my God, this is insane. Uh, really? Uh, so um, 
pinched myself and then flew to Nashville and met her and we made sure that we were on the same page and wanted to tell the same movie. And she, what she loved about it was that it wasn't a two-dimensional character. It wasn't just another female who was written in service of a man. She wasn't just someone's wife. She was a, a character within her own right with her own needs and wants and baggage and backstory and... And that she went on a massive arc and that through that, you know, this character is very exposed and that she got to show us that part of herself, you know, which is kind of skinless, the part of her that can't cover up, you know, the stuff that's not palatable that we all kind of try and cover up sometimes that, you know, the character gets to a point where she can't mask it anymore. So Nicole loved that about the opportunity of playing Catherine. When you get a star of that magnitude, somebody of that experience who's played a whole lot of big roles in big movies, what does she bring to the story? How does she change the story or how does the story change to fit her? So one of the... Did everyone hear the question? Is everyone hearing us okay? Great. So one of the biggest compliments someone paid the film at Sundance, this person came up and said, I didn't... They said, I knew it was Nicole Kidman, because obviously her name's up the front, but I didn't recognise it as Nicole Kidman. I didn't watch it as Nicole Kidman, because they were just watching this character. And so, for me, one of the challenges was, how do you have a star in your film and you don't spend the whole time thinking about, you know, the paperboy or um, the birthday girl or dead calm or australia or other films how do you how do you just watch the character and i feel like because nicole really committed to unraveling and being seen in her most kind of uncomfortable icky desperate needy you know vulnerable aggressive all the parts it kind of it felt to me like she was willing to take off any masks she might have had and really expose herself, and she did, and I think that's why it is such a strong performance. So, obviously, it makes it a lot, you know, very appealing for international audiences and investors. When you have a name like that, they immediately go, wow, that must be a good script, and, you know, they must believe in the project, so let's invest in this. And so that did obviously make it a lot easier to get things funded. There's an Irish connection in terms of financing as well. How did that come about? The little gremlins in the background of the... No. The leprechauns. Uh, so, leprechauns, sorry. The Irish connection was... Um, so, the co-producer along with Naomi was a gentleman named Magdara Kelleher, and it was one of those crazy things. I was in Berlin pitching the film, trying to get people interested. The guy I was renting off Craigslist, my apartment, <laughs> uh, said, what are you doing here in his German accent? And I said, oh, I'm trying to pitch this film. And we had dinner and chatted about it and told him and his wife, you know, it's about this couple and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, I know this Irish guy. And he'd, he'd really like that. So I was like, okay, I'll meet him. So uh, we sent the script to Magdara and he loved it. And then he... He gave it to uh, the head of the Irish Film Board at the time, Simon Perry, and he loved it. And suddenly he was like, Ireland wants to put money in your movie, okay? Um, so that was how they came on board. And what was great about that is we actually ended up having this foreign element, which then attracted, like, PJ Dillon, who was a cinematographer. So we had, you know, what was great is we could have an eye shooting the film that saw the Australian landscape in a way that 
from the perspective of a stranger, he'd never been to Australia, he'd never been to the desert. He was a six foot three red-headed Irishman giant who, you know, was freaking out with the flies and the climate and the sun. And, but he was able to see the light in this country in a different way and photograph it, like, through a stranger's eye. So it was advantages to having the Irish. So you'd recommend Craigslist as a source of film financing? Craigslist is where all the financing is at these days, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it, um, there isn't any Irish content on screen. Nobody said at any stage we need an Irish character in there. Correct. Excellent. <laughs> that cleared that up. Actually, it's kind of not unusual, is it, to sort of funding sources to bring somebody in from their own country, but I'm glad to hear that they didn't, so that's good. Uh, tell us also about uh, when and where you shot it. Uh, Canoundra, I know, was one of the locations. Uh, the desert looks so was shot in such a way as to sort of look almost like an infinite landscape. So tell us about where you shot that as well. So we shot the film uh, in, uh, was it Leichhardt? We had interiors in Leichhardt, uh, and then we moved to Canoundra, um, which is like six hours away, little town. That was the main street of our fictional town, and it was very green all around Canoundra, so the amazing art department led by Melinda Doring, you know, turned it into a red, dusty town, and destroyed all those front windows with dust. Um, did you have to bring the dust in, did you? Yeah, we brought in the dust, truckloads of dust, and made it dirty, um, and aged it up, because it needed to feel like a beat-up old town. And then we shot all of the back streets of the fictional town in Broken Hill, and then, which is, you know, another eight hours away. And then we shot uh, the desert scenes in uh, Silverton and Mundy Mundy. Mundy Mundy being where the original Mad Max was shot, the Mundy Mundy Plains, which was amazing. Okay, and you borrowed the dust storm from Mad Max, obviously, the Fury Road dust storm. <laughs> well, the same company, Ilura, who did the Mad Max dust storms, did our, um, the, the big dust storm coming down the main street. So, yeah, they were great. Now, as well as the kind of themes about sex and the kind of feminine view of grief that we've talked about, there is an Aboriginal theme there as well. The town is called Nathgari, which has a kind of Aboriginal nature to it, the Aboriginal characters. What did you want to say in that element of the story? So when we were like deciding where to set the town, we wanted to put as much pressure on the parents as possible and um, both the... Fiona and I, the writer, were city girls, never spent much time in the desert. And we were like, what about if we put them out in the desert? Like, that's really scary, because we knew for ourselves that we don't cope so well in the desert. And, um, and then when we started going out there and looking and looking for locations, I realised, like, I don't know my land. I don't, I'm a white white Australian, I have no idea about this land and the legend and the sacredness of this land. And I wasn't taught as a child growing up, I wasn't educated to listen to the land, to tune into it. I was just kind of, in a way, just shown to use it and take from it. So um, in talking to Aboriginal consultants like Badger Bates, who worked on the film, they explained to us that, you know, because of... Um, 
you know, if you take from the land, it will take from you. You have to respect it. And that the great serpent, the great rainbow serpent who made the land, you know, like weaved his way through. And as he weaved his way through, he created the rivers and the mountains. And there's certain places where you can go and where you can't go and where it's bad luck to swim in a certain waterhole. And so we kind of started getting this whole new understanding, or at least I did, of actually the, the kind of stories and the dreaming of our original owners and and then in in researching the kind of this country of lost children notion it became apparent to me that when the colonials came you know they came the whites and they they took the land from the aboriginal people and then when their own children would go wandering off into the desert into this kind of vast open majestical space the, the whites had this kind of inbuilt guilt and anxiety that because they'd taken the land from the Aboriginal people, from the original owners, that the land was punishing them by taking their children. So we wanted to just feed into that kind of white anxiety about the bush and kind of have it there as an underneath layer. And I think because, you know, Catherine and Matthew, I mean, he's English you know, he's kind of a more direct colonial and she's like fair skinned and she doesn't really suit or fit in in this landscape. They were already kind of feeling their elders, their own white, you know, lineage of a history of guilt and anxiety about coming here and taking this place. So they project onto the land, you know, maybe the land's taken our children. So it was like another way of um, drawing upon their fear heightening it and putting more pressure on them, which would make them act out further. You've mentioned about how you want people to feel unsettled at the end of the film. Now, we don't want for people who haven't yet seen the film to give too much away, but I'm sure there would have been a lot of pressure at different stages of financing for people to say, we want a more conventional ending. Yes. <laughs> Definitely, there was pressures. Um, I think, and we talked about this a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, the very first draft, Lily, the daughter who goes missing, you know, she's kind of like this question mark in the film and the question of what happened, where is she, and we are we going to find her? And so um, having a film that poses questions and if you're a parent and you lose a child or there's uncertainty about your child and there's a not knowing, where do you go with that uncertainty? So then when we were researching and talking to parents who'd lost their children, it became very apparent to us that you don't ever get that answer. You don't ever get that closure. They are in a state of limbo forever and that's the agony, the not knowing just every time the phone rings or, you know, they see someone walking down the street who might look like their child and it's like, oh, is that them? 20 years later, you know, they're still kind of looking and hoping for closure. And beyond that, like beyond even if you haven't had your children go missing, in life, my experience is that we don't always get the closure. You don't always get the conversation with the person you split up with about why they left you or why you left them or, you know, or you don't get to see your parent before they die or you don't get to have that moment. Someone gets killed in a car accident. Life's full of uncertainty and it's like we want to hold on and we want to hang on and we want to know. The mind wants to know. And so we were really 
out of respect to the people that we were basing these kind of stories on, like the parents of missing children, they never know. So, but what we did want to give you was, you know, that um, relationship journey between the characters in terms of what happens to those left behind. You know, how does this unravel them, but also the chance of, you know, how does it um, leave them in a new in a new way, which is, you know, those scenes at the end. I'm trying to say this without giving anything away. It's really difficult. But if that makes sense to anyone who's seen it, like, you know, in those last scenes, like, where are they now after this journey compared to where they were at the beginning before their kids even went missing? Of course, leaves it open for a sequel. Is that what you were thinking? <laughs> yes, no, <laughs> no sequel. It's really fascinating territory that you're exploring here, and it's not something that people do in film very much. Where do you go from here? What do you do next? Do you mean my next projects? Yeah, why not? Oh, uh, so, well, um, I'm living in the States now, and I'm attached to a couple of projects over there. Um, uh, great little indie drama, which is kind of like a darker Little Miss Sunshine called The Evil In Me. And also I'm attached to a, a project in uh, the UK, which is a psychological thriller for Michael Winterbottom's company, Revolution Films, called Hush Money. And I'm also developing a TV series, which just got the pilot script yesterday. So, you know, making my own projects as well as working with other writers and, and on existing films and then joining them and attaching you tell us something about the TV series? The TV series. Guess what it's about, Gary? Would it have anything to do with sex? Yes. Okay, well, that's a good seller. And uh, we've clearly... Everybody stayed for the talk, so they're clearly interested in the topic. Uh, it's kind of... Um... Look, he got embarrassed. It was so cute. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, there's been a bit of publicity recently about female filmmakers, the, the difficulties of breaking into the film in Australia. I actually think it's probably, you know, Australia has quite a strong tradition of excellent women directors emerging that the US, for example, doesn't. But how difficult was it for you? Were there any sort of gender issues that you faced? So this is a question on all, like, all the lips of the journalists that I've spoken to in the last few days. I take it back in that case. No, no, it's a great question. So just to, for anyone who hasn't, is, doesn't, you know, and of course a lot of people don't even care about this, but in the industry of film in Australia, the recent Screen Australia statistics on how many films, feature films, are made by women, have a guess what the percentage is. Anyone? Not 30, 16. So 16% of the films that are made in this country are made by women today. So it just feels a little bit unequal. Um, but I have to say, to be really honest, when we were making the film, and we have, you know, female producer, female writer, female director, um, female production designer, female editor, I, that wasn't a conscious decision on my behalf. For me, it was always about who's the right person 
for this role and the crew? You know, who's the right combination of artistry, temperament, you know, with the editor. I wanted someone who was going to challenge me and that I could spend four months in a room, a dark room with, you know. Who's the right DOP? Now, the right DOP was a man named PJ Dillon. He's a foreigner. He was also incredibly unusual and talented and, and, and uncompromising in a great way. Like, he really pushed me with the lighting as well. But he also on set was like, even though he was this big guy and he knew all the toys back to front and he'd shot Game of Thrones and Vikings and whatever, he wasn't all about talking about toys. He wasn't like trying to, you know, show how gifted he was. He was very quiet and gentle. So he was right for the role. So in the end, how we crewed up the film was about artistry and the right temperament. It wasn't about whether you had, you know, a, excuse me, but penis and a testicles or whether I had breasts and a vagina doesn't mean I can direct a film or not. And that to me is the difference of like, I'm now, when I look at those statistics, I go, well, why is it that there's some kind of belief happening out there that women can't direct movies, that women can't lead? I don't understand that. So does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, I think... Does that make sense? Yeah. In terms okay. of... Australian industry. I mean, obviously, we've had tremendous female talent emerging. Uh, Jennifer Kent with The Babadook, another brilliant, really interesting film with a female take on a particular genre. Quite fascinating. And, of course, we had a period of time when Best Director at the AFI Awards was won by a woman in five out of seven years or something. Uh, so there is a kind of tradition of success that, uh, you know, certainly the US doesn't have anything like that, I think. Um, Doesn't change that statistic, though. It's no. still 16%. Fair point, yep. Uh, it's, um, I wonder about the reactions, the discussions you've had after this film, both at Sundance and here and other places it might have screened. What, what do people want to talk about? What sort of issues does it raise for them? Do you mean regarding gender equality? or no, j Just, no, the film itself. Just what issues the film throws up for people that they want to talk about. Well, um, I haven't heard much from audiences here yet because we've only had one Q&A last night, but in Sundance, uh, a lot of what people spoke about, which was really beautiful for me, was about uh, feeling uncomfortable and feeling, you know, a lot of people were m m moved, but also, like, grateful to see those flawed characters on the screen because then it made them feel better about themselves. And I'll give you one beautiful example. One of the most um, heartening things for me as a director was this 75-year-old woman came up to me after one of the screenings at Sundance. She waited for everyone else to leave and then she pulled me aside, took me down the corridor and whispered. So she said, when I was 32, my husband of eight years, my beloved husband, he died suddenly in a car crash. And she said, and I did what that character did. I did what Catherine did. And I've never told a soul. And I'm 75 years old. And what you've given me is that I realise I'm not alone and I don't have to feel all this shame. So as a filmmaker, to actually affect some kind of healing in someone, like that was extraordinary and made me feel very grateful and like, yes, we, you know, because it's, it's also uncomfortable making a film that's uncomfortable. You know, I, I'm like everyone. I want to be liked. I want to want people to go, yay, good on you. And, you know, like, you don't come out of this film going, yay. You come out of it going, oh, fuck, sorry. 
you know, like, give me a drink. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a hard place to hold in terms of creating something that makes people a little, like, uh, within themselves, but at the same time, perhaps they're seeing themselves in others. Perhaps it does reduce some kind of shame or self-loathing, and that was our intent. You're clearly somebody who's uh, very smart and a deep thinker about life and emotions. I wonder what you see as the purpose of, of film generally. Do you, do you see films as bringing people together? Do you see films as healing? Do you, do you see film healing? Uh, do you see films as provoking, forcing people to challenge their opinions? Do you have any sort of sense of what you want to do with your films? So that what I want to do with my films is a lot of those things, you know, healing, provoking, challenging, um, ah, inspiring, freaking you out, whatever I can. But ironically, the films that I love to see, as well as, you know, amazing art house films, is, is also I love to go and see a really mainstream, big blockbuster psychological thriller and be completely taken away from my own little thoughts and troubles and whatever and just, you know, absorbed in entertainment. And I love seeing a comedy. I love documentaries. So I think it's, you know, we want to inspire, we want to challenge, but we also want to laugh. We also want to escape. Uh, yeah, like everyone. So you're pitching to direct a comic book movie next. Is that the thinking? Um, I have directed a black comedy, um, but, you know, prob probably th there's little bits of comedy in my films. I know but they... you made a comic book film, a sort of superhero graphic oh, novel film. yes. Well, I did get sent a shark film, and I thought that was a really interesting choice to <laughs> send me, like, a shark film to direct. I was like, yeah, me and the animatronic shark. Woo! Seeing as I'm a performance director, yay. So you said no? I loved the script. I actually thought I would love to watch this film, but I'm probably best not to direct it. Okay. Uh, we've got uh, some time for questions there, so uh, I'm sure people, it's the kind of film that people have questions for. So if you just put your hand up, a microphone will come and uh, ask away. Great film, Kim. Um, I've never heard an audience groan so loudly at Nicole Kidman trying to throw herself at Hugo Weaving. <laughs> One of the things that I notice in the film is that you do a very good job of kind of framing that male vulnerability, especially with Hugo Weaving and especially the son and the dad character. There's a really tender moment towards the end where he says that he regrets how he reacted in the moment. And I don't think he was referring to when the kids go off. I think he was referring to when he saw the little naked six-year-old girl and how he reacted to that sexuality. And I think he, because that kind of let the audience know how upset he was, that he was responsible for her being the way she was. Is that what you felt when you were trying to get that performance out of the actors when you were doing the script? You know, it really explored how men see women, not just young women, but female sexuality and how he felt shame in himself. Is that what you meant when he said that he felt bad in that moment? Don't you just love cinema? Like, I love that reading. I've never had that reading before. Definitely Matthew was drawing upon the watching his kids run off into the desert, but all the lurking decisions he'd made, you know, taking them from the last town, not dealing with it, 
moving away to kind of as if that was dealing with it, uh, shutting down from his daughter when she was six years old, all of that. So absolutely, I personally, I'd never thought of that. So you're a genius. I love it. Um, but definitely I thought of it, all the stuff that he hadn't dealt with was imbued in that moment. Like if I could just take back that moment, all, all my history as a father. Yeah. But thank you. I mean, I think also Hugo, extraordinary actor, and his part of why we cast him is because he has this beautiful vulnerability and sensitivity, which is often he's typecast in the more, you know, cold and the Matrix and the V for Vendettas and, you know, all that stuff, because he can play that. But he's actually very tender and vulnerable and beautiful. So thank you. He brought a real integrity to that part too, didn't he? A lot of integrity he yes. brought to it. Just getting back to the theme of sex, um, the, could you expand on the, the implication of incest, the theme of incest in the film? So um, when, when we spoke to the um, parents of children who'd gone missing, we were doing our research and also spoke to a lot of police, um, we found that one of the most difficult things for parents to deal with was that they were the prime suspects, as well as dealing with their kids are missing. And so it felt like, wow, that is so much pressure to put on a parent who's dealing with the high anxiety of potential loss to also be being scrutinized, judged. And then, you know, we watched films like Capturing the Freedmans, the documentary about, you know, a potential father who might have been molesting his children, or, or children that he was teaching in the, in the um, basement of his house. And Fiona and I, the original writer, we, we argued and argued about, you know, this film and what the outcome was and was he or wasn't he not and da-da-da. And then we thought, well, that's so interesting that we're arguing about it and the hysteria of the people in the town because everyone wants to blame someone. And so we thought, well, let's use that in Strangerland. You know, the father's going to be the first suspect because she's a sexual, young, pretty girl. The finger's going to be pointed at him. So let's make that amb ambiguous. You know, let's have people, the town, but also the audience project onto him, you know, that he's potentially a molester. And I think people often tend to do that, you know, so then that's, that would be very difficult to be a man and to be receiving that. So his way of dealing is to shut down, which then makes them think he's doing it even more, which was really fascinating. And, you know, the fact that the cop says, maybe you should look at home, you know, so then he has his wife turn on him. And so, you know, these are the things that these parents were talking about, what they had to deal with when they started looking to each other to blame. First it was like outside often, and then it was like looking inside. So that was something we were really excited to explore. Um, but ultimately it's not about molestation. Thanks. Okay. Congratulations. Great Thank film. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, my question is, uh, I looked I look up the internet last night and your budget apparently estimated to be about 10 million. Is that correct? And no. No? But anyway, uh, who are, can you tell us who are your funding bodies and how did you manage to like convince them that this film is going to be great and give me the money? Something like that. <laughs> uh, so... 
the film was financed by uh, the Irish Film Board, Screen Australia, Screen New South Wales, Transmission, who's our local and amazing distributor, um, Sound Firm, which is a sound facility at Fox Studios, and Worldview Entertainment, the Americans, Worldview Entertainment. So, I mean, but you, you know, obviously along the way as a filmmaker, you, you're pitching all the time, you're talking to people about your movie, you're making little trailers, you're making visual slideshows. We made like a lookbook, which was like a visual Bible for the film that talked all about the themes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I shot some scenes from the film beforehand with other actors. So lots of different ways to pitch it. Um, and, you know, I had really strong producers who were creating a finance plan and marketing plans to back up, this is how we're going to sell it, etc. Shot with the 40% producer offset, presumably? And the producer offset from Screen Australia. Very grateful to our funding bodies. Okay. Congratulations, Kim. Great film. Um, how many weeks pre-production did you have? How did you use that time? And looking back, are you happy with the way you used that time? <laughs> so we had six weeks pre-production. We had a 30-day shoot with three massive location moves. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so... Okay, again, what I would do differently is what I realized is pre-production for a director, the only thing you do all day long is answer questions. You don't actually get any time to visualize, storyboard, shot list, anything like that. So luckily, I'd done pretty much all of my own preparation before I started pre-production, so that by the time we started, all I did was literally run down from one office to one corridor to one room to costume to makeup to, you know, the design department to the DP just answering questions all day and then going to the casting and, you know, so the best use of time I think is just to be available 24-7 to answer questions. How many weeks rehearsal with the actors was in there? So, uh... The overall rehearsal period, I believe, was eight or nine days, but, like, I had two days... No. Yeah, two days with Nicole. I had eight days with Joseph. I had three days with Hugo, and then a couple of days each with the um, supporting cast. Nick, how long did we have? A couple of days? A couple of days? Two or three days? So, yeah, it was... Not not a lot. <laughs> lots of phone calls, lots of phone calls and emails with Nicole and um, back and forth. And, you know, in Hugo, we'd had lots of dinners and conversations and we'd all sit around and talk about the characters. And But, you know, she's a very busy actress, so it was really hard to get access. And she was just... We were wedged in between two movies for her. We've got time for one last question. How did you how did you find your two young, your, your two young actors for the, their roles, and what made you convinced that they were the right persons for each of their respective roles? Everybody catch that question. What? How did you find the two young actors, and what convinced you that they were the right people for the roles? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I heard the first part, but I couldn't hear the second part. Uh, so 
Uh, Nikki Barrett, who's the casting director, amazing woman with a... We know when you meet those people who have such an unusual brain, you're just like, I want your brain. Anyway, so Madison Brown was actually the first person I ever saw for Lily, and then we saw like over a hundred and something girls, and then I just kept getting Madison to come back in, kept getting her to retest. She'd never acted before, so I really wanted to make sure that she could indeed pull off the role, but she had this kind of... Uh, that child woman thing that was such a short window of time, you know, where she was kind of still innocent and naive and at the same time, like, kind of oozing sexuality. And it was, like, on set, it was, like, almost like we needed, like, a an army to protect her because she was so gorgeous. And it was like everyone would just stare at her and she'd be like this magnet. And it was like, ooh, let's, like, protect her. Anyway, and then Nicholas came in um, amidst, you know, a plethora of young men applying for the role and auditioning and he kind of blew me out of the water with his first tape and then got him back in again. And we'd actually, originally the character was a couple of years older but Nick was so good and so Tom and so open and willing and willing to work in unusual ways with me, um, you know, like really drawing up upon his own life experiences to f fuel into the character. And so, yeah, we adapted the, the role and made him younger and Nick got the role and was amazing. It's been such a privilege to hear from somebody as smart, creative, deep thinking and uh, with some, somebody with so much potential as, uh, for a filmmaker as Kim. So, uh, and I have to say, we've really spoken about sex so often in a Q&A that I've ever done in my life. So well done for keeping, that, uh, keeping up the audience interest. So please thank Kim for her time today. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thank you for those who asked questions. Um, I just want to also thank, thank Gary, because it's not easy being an interviewer. Um, it's also challenging and confronting to be out there in front of people doing that. So I want to thank you, Gary. And um, if you enjoyed the film or you like the film or you think other people should see it, then please tell them it's screening tonight at Cremorne at 8.30 at the Orpheum, but it also starts its national release on June 11th. And it's great if you can go in that first week, then it keeps the film in cinemas for longer. Thanks so much.